Now, of course, you wouldn't catch me dead using a cliché, except, of course, for knowing ironic purposes. But let me get straight to the point, as Shirley Bassey so memorably sang. Cliché is part of language. Regrettably unforgettable, and often unforgettably regrettable, it grows like topsy, ineradicable, and probably indefinable. Writer and language expert Julia Cresswell. A cliché is effectively whatever anybody says is a cliché. It's almost impossible to define clichés. That itself is a cliché of writing on clichés. Julia is author of the Penguin Dictionary of Clichés, although the book has been given a brand spanking new makeover, as we'll hear in a minute. But it is true to say she is a cliché collector. Tough job, but someone's got to do it. I wanted to write a book about the history of the weird and wonderful expressions we use. A cliché is something automatic, like something that's printed out in mass form over and over again. But one person's cliché is another person's everyday turn of phrase or colloquialism or idiom or quotation. One of the things I think that makes an expression a cliché is if it effectively does your thinking for you. And this, of course, is what politicians exploit, it's what advertisers exploit, and it's what bores drive you mad with. And one of the reasons, I think, why we use clichés is actually they're very efficient. This is particularly obvious if you look at the sort of clichés that are used by journalists or politicians. So they say a lot more because of their social associations and people's experience of how they've been used in the past, they build up to very effective ways of getting at your emotions or channeling your thoughts in certain directions. People get so worked up about clichés and think that they're bad when perhaps they're not necessarily all bad and certainly they do give us a history of our culture. Some of them are extraordinarily old, some of them very new. And almost all of them are borrowed and some of them, to continue in Julia's poetic vein, are blue. Goody. First though, a definition from Dr David Penfold of the School of Printing and Publishing at the London College of Communication. Cliché is a term that describes the manufacture by printers, probably in, starting in the 18th century, of a version of type which allows them to use this cliché over and over again to keep printing. It's a version of clique, so it means to click. I'm not quite sure whether it was clicking into place or the sound of it, but it came from the, the idea when the French, presumably, used papier-mâché to over the type, which had been set, and then they formed a mould, and then into the mould they created a metal reproduction of the type. So it was no longer movable, it was, it was fixed then. So like, like this one here, this is a curved one, but you can see the same principle, that the type's been set, and so you then have something which is no longer movable type, but it's, it's something you can keep reproducing, which is hence the cliché. It actually comes from a French verb meaning to click, and the correct English translation of this is stereotype. And you can see why stereo, because the, the type actually stands out, because it's three-dimensional. 
Now, often derivations aren't worth the paper they're printed on, but in this case, the fact that cliché starts life as a printer's term, a forerunner of cut and paste, a way of preserving and regurgitating freeze-dried phrases, is worthy of note. So a stereotypical phrase, infinitely reproducible at the click of a printing plate, and later, the click of a mouse. In the days of movable type, individual letters made of metal, the very physical ingredients of bespoke words, had to be treated as a finite resource, treasured. So, a cliché was a handy cut-out-and-keep, one-click affair. No compositing, no thought, no tying up of language into anything original. The very definition of cliché is coined by people for whom words are a stock-in-trade. So, I blame the media. Cliché dates back to 18th century printing, but the oldest cliché in the book is older even than that. The oldest cliché in the book is hither and thither, which perhaps is a bit dated now, but it has reason to be, since the earliest example I found goes back to 725 in Old English, which is not the only Old English cliché, actually. But is hither and thither a cliché? Does not its great age and old-fashioned vocabulary exempt it from the linguo bin? I mean, if you're going to turn round and say clichés are in the eye of the beholder, then we're going to be all over the shop. All over the shop? No, I, I would call that slang, perhaps, rather than a cliché. All right. One man's cliché is another man's... No, no, that's no good. Look, if we're not helped by derivation or definition, let's tap into a consistent source of cliché. Nice one, Cyril. Nice one, son. Nice one, Cyril. Consistency over the rest of the season. This is the main thing. Taking one game at a time and being consistent. So we just got to be very careful and take each game as it comes. And it is true to say, literally, that is a game of two halves, and both halves, the uh, ball didn't run our way. Obviously, I'm, I'm over the moon that it's finally happened, but uh, I felt very uh, upset for Dennis in many ways because being the pro of the years, he could only give of his best, and uh, when he came off, he looked absolutely... Yes, we know how he looked and how he felt. Not nice at all, Cyril. I think I've got an idea. Let's take this big old cliché and spread-eagle it, to mix an avian metaphor, on our operating table and subject it to remorseless examination. Find out just what makes it tick. Nurse, the screens. But first, the story so far. The year is 1908 and Tottenham Hotspur players were among the passengers on the long voyage home after a successful tour of Argentina. And on the way back, they came by sea. It's a very long journey, and to break the boredom, the squad, amongst all the rest of the passengers, were invited to take part in a fancy dress competition. This is Martin Cloak, football enthusiast and co-author of the Spurs Miscellany. And the fancy dress competition was won by two members of the Spurs squad dressed as Man Friday and Robinson Crusoe, uh, complete with, on one of their shoulders, the ship's power. When the ship got back to England, uh, as recognition of the, the fun that they provided, the ship's captain presented the Spurs team with the parrot. So the parrot lived at Spurs ground, White Hot Lane, for the next 11 years. So far, so what? We have to wait till 1919 and the reorganisation of top-class football depleted by World War I losses. 
news came to Tottenham that the team would not qualify for first division status. They'd been cheated, allegedly, of their rightful place at the top table by North London Aravistes and Woolwich refugees Arsenal. There was some lobbying done by a, a guy called Norris, who was the Arsenal chairman and uh, a bit of a kind of local businessman and bigwig, who had apparently been uh, having various conversations with the football authorities and persuaded them that they might want to do things differently because he'd just moved his team from South London up to, to Spurs territory in North London. Spurs' place was taken away and Arsenal, who had finished in sixth place in the second division, were given Tottenham's place. And on the very day this happens, the parrot, which had been presented uh, 11 years before, died. Um, so uh, one of the nicknames for, for Arsenal amongst Spurs fans is the Parrot Killers but uh, it's very likely that the phrase sick as a parrot actually comes uh, from this stage. So obviously the parrot would need to have been sick before it died but so what we do know for sure is there was a parrot, we know where it came from and we know that on the same day, a remarkable coincidence that Spurs were cheated out of their place in the first division, the parrot died so if that's not a good reason to be as sick as a parrot I don't know what is an admirable anatomy of a pestilentially successful cliché from Martin Cloak. True or untrue, it taps into the mythic Roman notion of augury. The health of birds, usually judged by the state of their entrails, had a close relation to the workings of destiny. And in this phrase, the footballer empathises with the doom-laden and nauseous bird. Is this myth the source of its enduring power? Its popularity was established in print. The first recorded use, according to sort of modern folklore, if you like, of the use of Sigurds of Power was in Private Eye in the late 70s in the famous FC Neeston reports, Sid and Doris Bonkers and all that. Uh, and Sigurds of Power was used in inverted commas. I also know that the sports writer Frank Keating claims to have invented the phrase when working on a local paper in Gloucestershire in the 70s. Apparently his sports editor was a fellow called Power, who was nicknamed with great originality Polly. So lots of people claim to have been the first to use it, but the earliest connection we can find is, is the famous story of the Spurs parrot dying in 1919. I think the original phrase was as sick as a dog, and also uh, sick as a horse was popular in the 1880s. It's quite strange because apparently horses can't vomit. Although a vomiting horse, one might imagine, if you want to imagine such a thing at all, betokens a horse on its um, last legs. And we shall return to animals, dogs included, later. First, though... Spare a thought for the parrot Dodger, the serious sports writer. Amy Lawrence writes on football for The Observer. Of course it's a cliché trap because there are so many times when you sit there and you think, I remember going to watch Chelsea in recent years under the Jose Mourinho era where every game was exactly the same and every game was Chelsea not trying that hard because they didn't need to but being incredibly functional and a bit better than the opposition and very seldom getting out of first gear and just having enough to win 1-0 or maybe 2-0 because by then the opposition had given up and Chelsea couldn't be bothered to actually turn on the style and after the 13th game of the season that you've watched Chelsea at home play exactly the same way literally people are sitting there in the press box tearing their hair out thinking can I not use the intro for this match that I used in the West Ham game because it's identical you know, just change the scorer and you've got the same story and literally sometimes the manager would come and you think please say something interesting because you just want a take or an angle that can give you something new and fresh because when you are you know on repeat effectively it doesn't go down that well with the editor so you obviously have to try and find something bright and amusing or slightly less cliche ridden than the last time. The internet has 
become a real added problem to uh, us poor hacks in that where once upon a time we might have had a, l- a little bit of time to play with before our deadline now we're expected to write instant copy so therefore you know our, our lovely opportunities to sit and gaze at the stands and rub our chins and ponder for some marvellous turn of phrase or metaphor is a bit out the window to coin a cliche because we're just as, as up against it as the tv commentators and now we just have to respond instantly with the first cliche that comes into our head if needs be like the printing press before it the internet has reinforced the power of cliche collector and author julia cresswell's collection was turned upside down by the arrival of the information superhighway I originally published a straightforward dictionary, listing the clichés, defining them, giving examples, giving their history. But this was before everyone got broadband. Nobody really buys reference books nowadays, or very many fewer than they used to. You use the internet. There are lots of good online dictionaries. You can get the whole Oxford English Dictionary online via your library. So... Commercial considerations come in here. You have to have value added, a USP. You have to think of the bottom line. So there's a big trend in publishing now that all reference books should be narrative rather than quickly look-up books. So I thought I'd organise the material thematically and take, for instance, clichés from food and cookery So you could have done to a turn, small potatoes, bite the hand that feeds you, bite off more than you can chew. Then we had to decide what to call the book. And we couldn't call it a dictionary of cliches anymore. So we had to think of something snappy and attractive. Initially, we were going to go with the best thing since sliced bread, which is a pretty good title and I was perfectly happy with that but it's a very difficult title to do a cover for. A picture of a loaf of bread sliced or unsliced is not going to be very attractive and then the designer came up with an absolutely irresistible cover illustrating the expression cat's pyjamas and it was just too good to waste. So that's how the book ended up being called The Cat's Pyjamas, The Penguin Book of Clichés as a subtitle. And we've built a veritable Noah's Ark of animal clichés, incontinent woodland bears, non-vomiting horses, often of a different colour, nauseous sitakiforms. Many were invented quite consciously. The Cat's Pyjamas was just one of many of these weird expressions used to mean excellent The bee's knees is the other one that survived. It dates from the 18th century, but it was used in a slightly different way. In the 18th century, the bee's knees was used for the smallest thing imaginable. So maybe this had sort of filtered down and was in the back of someone's mind when this trend started. In a world full of flappers and Model T cars and jazz, reaction against everything that the pre-First World War stood for, when modernism was all the craze, 
there was a trend for making the most elaborate expressions you could think of for excellent, mainly formed from combining an animal with some odd body part. The cat's pyjamas, clothing okay, but mainly body parts, so you have the bee's knees. The eel's ankle. The cat's whiskers. The flea's eyebrow. The canary's tusks. The snake's hips. The bullfrog's beard. The elephant's instep. Anything that you could think of. The elephant's pyjamas even has been recorded. The sardine's whiskers. And it was just a clever, supposedly witty way of saying good. Delve gently inside the cat's pyjamas and we'll find, waggling provocatively, another animal neologism meaning good, for which a preemptive apology might be in order. The dog's bollocks. I wish I could get my head round where dog's bollocks, sort of the imagery behind it. I've, I've just, I've argued it's because if you walk behind certain types of dog, like a boxer or a um, bulldog, the body parts are certainly outstanding. <laughs> it's a phrase whose history isn't really fully chronicled yet. Most people think it comes from Viz magazine, but it was around before. In the sense that we all know it now, meaning excellent, it's been picked up by the Oxford English Dictionary a couple of years before it was used by Viz. But there's an even older use that was picked up in the 1940s, and it was a use by printers who had a slang term, dog's bollocks. This turns out to be a rare example of a vulgarity and a piece of jargon and a slang term and a cliché and a pictogram. David Penfold of the London School of Printing. The dog's bollocks, which is a colon followed by a hyphen, is interesting because it was very popular at one time, but nowadays I don't think you'd find a publisher's style that would include that. It just wouldn't be acceptable. It's used in some languages. I mean, the French use it a lot, but in English, you won't find that colon followed by a dash that printers used to call the dog's bollocks used any longer. Not only did this, or rather these, fall into disuse in the closed world of printing, it didn't work very well in everyday speech. The problem with this was because it got shortened to the bollocks. But the problem is, if you're saying that's the bollocks, meaning that's really good, it's very easily confused with that's bollocks, meaning it's rubbish. And I think that's probably led to it dying out. The world's first self-cancelling cliché. But, dear feedback, why, oh, why is that nice Mr Fry stooping to such low illusions? Point taken. Let's go upmarket. Sports writer Amy Lawrence says tellingly about the repetitiousness of putting into print accounts of even the best football. It's like going to see Hamlet every week, twice a week. OK, there might be a different actor playing Hamlet, and obviously there's a slight difference in that the result might be slightly different from one Hamlet to the next. But essentially you are seeing a similar script time after time after time. So therefore, there are only so many ways you can describe the ball hitting the back of the net. There are only so many ways you can describe a fantastic right-footed cross. And there's only so many ways of saying to be or not to be. Catch-22, really. 
Uh, that, by the way, is a reference to the paradoxically existential dilemmas of Shakespeare's Hamlet and Heller's Yossarian, and a reference to the fact that a brilliant, life-changing line of poetry or novel can, by dint of association football-style repetition, have a simultaneous life as a clunking great cliché. And it's enough to make you want to draw a little moustache on the Mona Lisa. It really is. Cliché collections in one form or another have been amassed to serious effect by the great lexicographer Eric Partridge, the 18th-century satirist Jonathan Swift, and the novelist Gustave Flaubert. Dr Liz Barry is senior lecturer at the University of Warwick. The critic Hugh Kenner writes about Flaubert, as he writes about later writers like Joyce and, and Beckett, uh, and calls them stoic comedians. They're commentators who are looking at society and thinking about the dilemma of writing in an age of a print culture where everything that one says has been written somewhere before, where literature is distributed immediately to the masses. The problem that Roland Barthes, the critic, calls déjà lu, um, not déjà vu anymore, but déjà lu, already read. Everything that one says has been already read somewhere. And how does the writer respond to this situation. And um, one thing that these writers are exploring is the way in which their characters are trying to live their life by the cliches that they read in books. They're trying to apply these received ideas to the world. And there's always a gap. They never quite fit. Their experiences never quite fit to the experiences that literature tells them about. Um, so Madame Bovary is, is destroyed, you know, psychologically and, and literally in the end, by the fact that her love affairs don't match up with the romantic clichés that she reads about, that she can't reproduce those experiences in her own life. Flaubert's very aware that the writer isn't immune to clichés, so he writes about the way in which writers are afraid to open his dictionary in case they find their own words, or what they thought were their own words there. <laughs> or he comments on the way in which the, the banalities that he collects amusedly in his books, he actually also finds in his own love letters to Louise Collet. <laughs> so he's very, very aware that, that the writer, in some sense, is in crisis in not ever being able to produce the, the perfect new idea. I think that we hear the dead hand of, of the printing press in language. As we know, the etymology of cliché is connected to the sounds that the printing press makes, the click that the printing press makes. Like I say, I blame the media. All clichés, poetic and otherwise, start life as metaphors. And according to linguist Dr Guy Deutscher of Leiden University, metaphors either get ground into common or garden anonymity by repeated use, or repetition popularises them and turns them into long-lasting cliché. So the reason why clichés remain clichés and great, rather than just being ground down like most common metaphors, is that they were so powerful probably to start with that they refuse to biodegrade and they just pollute the landscape, like the big lumps of plastic that pollute the beach. But if these nasty-looking lumps of plastic can be recycled in a really clever way, if they have a second life as art, how do we rate them? Tell me, where is fancy bread? In the heart or in the head? Famous magical lines from the casket opening scene in The Merchant of Venice. Too famous, perhaps, for James Joyce's Bloom, the advertising man in Ulysses, whose head is teeming with this kind of stuff. 
he can't resist a recycling opportunity, and he already has fancy and bread at the back of his overdriven mind because of the enchanting smell from a local bakery. This is his instinctive pun about his own fancy and where it is bread. Tell me, where is fancy bread? At Rourke's the Baker's, it is said. A pun, a slogan, a satire on slogans, a satire on 20th century culture, an image from inside a man's head, a nifty bit of Shakespeare recycling. Dr Liz Barry. Joyce is playing there with a Shakespearean illusion, but also showing us how Bloom makes his own meanings for Joyce as well. These very constrained, very debased kinds of language are brought to life again and, and given all sorts of significance in his writings. In one sense, he's not frightened of the circulation of these meanings because in the, the rich um, and, and rather crazy world of Bloom's head, the associations that they will have will be completely unexpected and completely individual and personal to Bloom. Um, so there is a way in which the, the individual citizen can resist the kind of homogenising influence of advertising, you know, wanting to make us all the same, wanting to make us take, you know, buy the same product at the same time every day or at the same time every week. The big question about cliché, perhaps, is that it questions the distinction between the highbrow and the lowbrow. You know, for Joyce's Bloom, the allusions to Shakespeare and the advertising jingles are on a par in his mind. They've become detached from their context. They're circulating in his mind. He's, they're chiming off all sorts of things that he's encountering in everyday life. So there's a question about how one preserves the idea of high culture, and this is a question that's, that's exercising the critics of postmodernity. How does one preserve a distinction between high and low culture if the idea of originality is no longer as, as powerful as it once was, if there is this anxiety about everything already, the already read, um, everything always having been read before? How does one create that or preserve that distinction between the high and the low? And does it matter? Does it? Search me. They always say, though this is a bit of a cliché, radio has the best pictures. So, think Andy Warhol's self-conscious cliché, the repeated silkscreen print of Marilyn Monroe. Click, click, click. Makes you think, eh? Or not. Did any of this matter, or was it just an excuse for me to say bollocks a lot at the end of the day? There. I've said it. Baby, I feel good From the moment I rise Feel good from I've left it till the end of the programme, if not the day. Britain's favourite, or least favourite, cliché. Fry's English Delight was presented by Stephen Fry and produced by Nick Baker and at the end of the day it was a testbed production for BBC Radio 4.